This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey y'all, what's poppin'? Uh, <laughs> uh, how you doing, man? I'm great. I'm great. Friday night, pretty close to the end of a work week. Yep, yep. Uh, literally hours away from being done. Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, I got a whole day tomorrow. Oh, well, that stinks. Yeah, but yeah, good. Uh, you know, whoever said that um, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> they were lying. Yeah, they, <laughs> they were lying. I absolutely love what I do, but uh, it's still work. Uh, and it's okay. still a grind at times. You still have deadlines to meet, and therefore it still comes with stress. And yeah. so, yeah, uh, but... Overall, I really love what I do, and so yeah, it makes it easier to get it done. No, I get that. So uh, what you got there? I have the New Belgium Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've had it um, over the week. Um, really good, just kind of standard citrus Ford IPA. It is a double IPA, so extra hop flavor, which I really like. If I remember correctly, it's got this like grapefruit note on it. Yeah, that's why I said citrus in general. Yeah. Um, because it does, the citrus in it does develop quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, throughout. Now, I know you're, you're in a different boat. Yeah, so um, I started doing this thing um, this year where I take one week out of every quarter the one of the middle weeks out of the first month of every quarter. I know that's super confusing. Um, and I don't drink alcohol. Um, I, it's, a, it's a dry week. Um, and so it just so happened that this shoot fell on one of my dry weeks. And therefore, I am drinking uh, St. Arnold's Old Fashioned Root Beer. <laughs> so it is, still, uh, it is still in tune with Pints and, with pints and Perspectives. Um, I've had this before. It's actually really good and it's non-alcoholic. So yeah. Yeah. Cheers, man. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> but so I think this is important because you guys just see us here every week drinking beer uh, and talking about it as if we really know it and probably drink a lot. Um, but we drink beer for a few different reasons. Number one, because we enjoy beer like we enjoy the flavor and, and craft and artisanship of beer yeah and um yes but to another point um i drink beer because one of the things that i think is most powerful for us in gospel work today we live in the bible belt mm-hmm. and so the whole idea that um like we're truly meeting people who have never heard the gospel or know about Jesus. That's probably just a false narrative. Yeah. Uh, especially since we have these massive church buildings that are some of the largest buildings in our nation. Mm-hmm. People know what church is. Yeah. Like people know what we're about. They have a stereotype Yeah. about us. And so the number one most important and effective things that we can do is break that stereotype down for them. For sure. Deconstruct that. 
And for us as, uh, as a Baptist organization, like one of the ways in which we can do that is have a, is share a beer with someone. Mm. But we also like, we're not Alkies. Yeah. And, and that's the whole point of the dry week. Um, I do enjoy the artisan of beer and whiskey and mixing cocktails and, and all that. Um, and that's a part of my self care is like mixing cocktails and enjoying yeah. a good whiskey, enjoying a good beer or a good wine. Um, You're a sensate in that way. I am experiencing God through complexity of taste. I am a sensate in that way. Um, if you are like, what in the world is a sensate? Go listen to practicing presence. It'll tell you. Um, but, um, because I drink so much alcohol, um, I do like to take some time every now and then to make sure that there's not any dependency issues. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's good to take a break. Um, and I can't, I wish I could take credit for this. This wasn't my idea. Um, the guys over, um, at the whiskey tribe do this mm. and they encourage all of their, their listeners and their followers who they call magnificent bastards. <laughs> um, it's amazing, but um, they encourage them to take a dry week um, okay. out of every quarter. Um, and so I've started doing this and um, last time by the end of it, um, I felt a lot better and I'm coming to the end of it and I feel even better than I did the last time I did it. Mm. Um, you so, mean, when you say better, you mean like emotionally better or like a, like a detox better? Both. Okay. Um, like I feel, excuse me, I feel more, um, emotionally grounded. Okay. Um, and I don't feel, I don't know, like I drink more water and more tea. Um, yeah. so like it, it makes me like, I don't know, it's just better for your body. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So anyways, so moving on to what this podcast is actually about after seven minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we have been going through the Nicene Creed. Yep. Um, we have talked about the God parts. The God, uh, the Father part. Yep. The God, the Father part. Um, and we talked about Jesus part one. Yep. Jesus uh, part one. And now we are coming to Jesus part two. Yep. So picking up with... Um, the last part here about the Jesus section. Um, it says he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Now that's important because, um, well, for a few different ways, number one, you can't experience resurrection if you never die. Yeah. Right. So like Jesus had to die. There's also atonement elements there that Jesus had to atone for our sins. Um, now, and this is important, we need to do another episode on this. Um, and I think um, we need to do more episodes on this. But if you've been around evangelicalism for any length of time, your exposure to atonement theory... Um, is probably going to have predominantly been substitutionary, that Jesus was our substitute on the cross. But there are other atonement theories, mm -hmm. uh, not just that one. So 
there's penal substitutionary atone, atonement that Jesus is a ransom mm. that God, the father is somehow a wrathful God that needs, um, to be appeased through a ransom. And Jesus becomes that ransom. There's the Christus Victor atonement theory, which is Christ is the victory over death. Mm. Um, there's the conquering of evil. Like there are a number of different atonement theories um, that we all find elements of in scripture. But at some level, like all of them point to the fact that Jesus had to die. Right. Like, like in order for sin to be atoned for blood had to be shed. And to another point, like we know through other historical documents Mm -hmm of the Roman uh, government that a person named Jesus from Nazareth was actually crucified under Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Like that, that really happened. Yeah. Like there's no question for any true scholars that Jesus was a real person. Right. Absolutely. There may be questions about what he accomplished or what his followers thought, Mm -hmm. but nobody questions that he was a real person. Yeah. Like he was actually a person crucified under Pontius Pilate. And it's also important that he's crucified. Um, I'm not going to get all the way into it because I think they do a great job of it. But the Bible Project um, and their podcast, they have, I think, a six or seven part series about the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And really good. Uh, they track the kind of motif of tree through the biblical narrative. And they come up with a really insightful, um, learning there that leads up to the cross. And so I also think it's important that Jesus died on a cross because he's literally hung on a tree and a dead tree literally a tree that has been chopped down and dead. Um, so I think there are some bigger uh, theological schemes and structures that we can build out of that uh, on another podcast. But if you're curious, just like right this moment, go listen to the Bible project. Yeah. Cause they, they do, they explain this really well. Yeah. They did a good job. They always do a good job though. Like, yeah, they they're just do. really good. <laughs> I mean, uh, John and Tim, they're just really good. They're, they are. They're really good. Um, and uh, if you guys somehow catch this podcast, um, hit us up. We'd love to do a collab. Oh, my God. That yes. would be a dream. Oh, you have no idea. I would fanboy so hard. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That would be amazing. We could bring our Greek Bibles and just nerd out together. Yeah, and then I, me and John would be sitting there like we have no idea. What's oh happening. yeah, but me and Tim, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we're we're we would just like be in Bible nerd heaven together, or I would be in Bible nerd heaven. <laughs> Tim would probably be like, Dude, who is this I, guy? I'm long past this guy. <laughs> Tim yeah. has like I I have two degrees working on three. Tim has like six working on a billion. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so. Uh, he's crucified under for us under Pontius Pilate. So that's the yeah. the four there is the atonement part. Yeah. Right? That for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Yeah. Right? Like that that this action happened for humanity. Right. Um 
He suffered and was buried. Now that word suffered is really, really interesting that they chose that word. Um, because there's this conversation about God and the passion narrative. So passion means, um, so when we talk about the passion of Christ, we're talking about that, that week of, mm-hmm. um, of suffering. Right. Right. So it, passion really means like experience or suffering. Like it's really hard to translate, but it's like, it's definitely something that happens to you. Like it's something yeah. that you experience. Whereas when something we say you feel well, like emotionally, yeah, right? but but it's it's something you experience because mm-hmm. it's not limited to emotion. Okay, uh, it's something that you experience with the wholeness of your being, mm. and so we we talk about passion and we talk about like romantic passions, right, or or lustful passions. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, which like lustful passions, like that's a holistic takeover of your body, right. Right, so that that's maybe the best point of comparison, but passion um, is uniquely linked to suffering mm. in the person of Jesus, and so it's interesting that they choose this word because it lends itself to a conversation about the immutability of God, mm. and so um, immutability would mean that God is incapable of change. Okay mutability would mean that God is capable of change and it lends itself to this dilemma. Okay. If God is immutable or sorry, if God is mutable, if God is capable of change, where does that change stop? When does he stop changing? Yeah. But if God is immutable, what do you do with the death of Jesus on the cross? Because death is a unique change to creator and life-giving God. Right. For someone who is, for a being that has always existed, death is a unique change. Right. Um, and so, it brings to this question, you know, we we say, uh, you know, God never changes. He's the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. Well, God indwelling a person the son of God taking on human form. It's a change in God. No. Um, God experiencing death. It's change. It's a change in God. Um, experiencing suffering and rejection. So there's this unique phrase that happens in Matthew um, where Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Like, why have you maybe hard to translate, but like, why have you turned your back? That's a change in God. Yeah. Um, God's creator and sustainer, and for him to turn his back to forsake something, it's a change yeah. in who he is. Um, and so, and especially in the way that we experience God, that changes. Uh, for sure that changes. Yeah. Uh, now some of that change is brought on by our own doing. Some of it's brought on by God's doing. Right. Um, but by and large, like we have to say that God changes. Mm-hmm. And so for them to say that he suffered and was buried, um, 
that's a uniquely theological word that they're doing more with than we can see just here. And this is why I wanted to do the Nicene Creed before we did the Apostles' Creed, because this is where they're getting into the deeply philosophical stuff. Right. Because um, Nicaea is combating a guy named Arius, where Arius pretty much just denied the divinity of Jesus. And Nicaea comes up with like this formulation mm. that that God that he is uniquely God and uniquely man. Right. And so we we can't really say that like it would be a heresy to say that like only Jesus' body died. Because it's like it's this uniquely so when we get to Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon in, in four fifty one, they come up with this language of the hypostatic union. This, this perfect joining of substances under one. So Jesus, the man, and God, the son, become one whole being morphed together, 100% God and 100% man becoming a 200% being. Mm. Like they're inseparable. Mm. So what happens to Jesus, the man, happens to God, the son. Like they are the same. Mm. Um and so that word suffering is not just uniquely to him receiving the lashes before he's crucified right? Uh, or him being beaten. Like this is unique to talk about his relationship with God. Mm. Um, and it is to set this dilemma. Now they don't solve it. Right. Right. I actually don't think it's until we get into the 20th century theologians that we solve this problem mm-hmm. uh, coming down to ethical uh Trinitarian theology with Jürgen Moltmann. I think Moltmann really helped solve this, that, that God changes to the extent of experiencing love and relationship with his people. Yeah. Like God does change, but he experiences it. He, he changes because of the experience of love. Mm. Like that is why God has chosen to change. Um, and that that's rooted in Moltmann. Um, so they don't solve it, but they are identifying a unique, a unique element here in suffering, that there's a relationship here that happens. That they don't have everything worked out, right? But like they know it's there. So suffering is a really important part of this part of the conversation here. Okay. Um, and then maybe to the thing we've all been waiting for, uh, the creed continues. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. Yeah. Okay. So there, this is a two-part phrase that's really important. Um. On the third day he rose again. Okay. And if you if you're a How I Met Your Mother fan, you will um. You will get this part, but uh, Barney often uses biblical narrative to explain like whatever <laughs> he's trying to do. Um, his whole, his whole thing on the, the platinum rule. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah. So the platinum rule is that you always wait three days to call a girl. Uh, oh no, that's not the platinum rule. But the part where I'm going is he makes this argument to Ted that you always wait three, three days to call a girl. Yeah. And he says that we wait three days because Jesus wants us to wait three (laughs) days. That's what he modeled for us. Um, because like if it had just it's been so one day, bad. well, he's like if it had just been one day, people have been like, "Dude, did you even die?" Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, he just went to sleep. 
So he goes through this whole bit about that it's unique about the three days. And while his way of going about it might be sacrilegious to some people, like they might take it like, but also like it's comedy. It's a, like it's a joke for the sake of comedy. Like, yeah, let's not be so tight. Yeah. Um, but I do think he's onto something there. Like three days is a unique amount of time. Yeah. Um, it's long enough that the body would start to decay, mm. which means that there's a full element of restoration that happens here. And something that um, we're going to talk about in a few episodes um, is, uh, well, in a few series, is about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Because I think for us Protestants, or maybe not even Protestants, but evangelical, the conversation's really been limited to, um, it's really been limited to like a, a, a reformed doctrine of soteriology or an Arminian one. Yeah. Um, those are not the only options. No. And they're not even the options of the ancient world. I mean, reformed theology to... I mean, in some expression, originates with a guy named Augustine in the 4th century. It's really developed by a guy named John Calvin mm-hmm. in the Reformation. Which is where we get Calvinism, Reformed theology. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Arminianism, which is a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius, yeah. which is like also later, which, like around the time of John Calvin. Which is literally the opposite. Of Calvinism. It is basically, no, I mean, it's not basically, it is um, the. It's the opposite. It's the it's polar the opposite. opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And, but people have tried, I mean, there's guys named like Pelagianism, which I think a lot of us are, and don't say that. Um, but a lot of people have tried to explain salvation. And, Nobody in the ancient world, like first followers of Jesus, are thinking of salvation in the terms that we are. Right. So when Paul says the reason we struggle in our current expressions dealing with Paul's statement about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is because they weren't talking about salvation in the categories that we are. Right. Like we superimpose those back onto the text. Yeah. Um, and so it didn't fully work. And so for Jesus to have been dead for three days is important for their theology because they believed in a theology called deification. Right. And that was unique to the body and the soul being connected together and both being in need of restoration and that our whole being was on a path of seeking to become more like God. Mm. And when Jesus is resurrected... He has a deified body. So it's unique um, because it's been wholly restored because it's been dead for three days. Yeah. So like it would have started a decaying process and yet he comes back um, not having been decayed. But also he's not without blemish because he says to Thomas, touch my hands. Right. See the hole in my side. Um So it's still his body, still uniquely his body, but he also floats through a locked door Mm -hmm. in that same text. 
So it's like a material, immaterial body. Yeah. But yeah, he also eats fish for breakfast with Peter. So it, he's has corporeal form, but also not at the same time. Like yeah, it is a uniquely deified body. Yeah, it is something we have not seen before. Yeah. Um, and so for them, like the statement about three days is important. Right. That's not just some arbitrary thing that he was down for three days. Um, it's important to the theology that they have. Mm-hmm. That there's something important about what's happened to Jesus' body in those three days. Yeah. Uh, and also to Jesus' own prophecy. Right. Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild in three days. Yeah. Um, and that leads us to the second part of this clause, which is the, uh, this happened according to the scriptures. There was a guy, um, <clears throat> I can't remember his actual name. I think it's Marcion. But his followers were called Marcionites. And they decided that they didn't think that um, the Old Testament was important anymore because we had the New Testament. And so Marcionites or Marcionism is making Christianity void of the Old Testament, which they deem heretical. Like that's a heresy to do that. Right. Now... I think most Christians today are functionally Marcionites. We don't care about the Old Testament. We don't read it well. We don't know it well. Um, And therefore, we miss huge things that the biblical authors are doing because we don't know our Bible. Um, Christianity is the fulfillment, and some might argue reinterpretation of Judaism. Right. Um. And so, like, that's important that this happened according to the scriptures. Like, according to the Old Testament, this was God's plan Yeah, to do this this way. Jesus was crucified according to God's plan. And then he ascended into heaven. We talked about this, or maybe you and I talked about this independent, but we see Jesus perform miracles. And, and in, in Mark's gospel, the miracles are unique in that they um, they show Jesus' power and authority over some element of yeah. lapsarianism, like over some element of the fall. So his exorcisms are authority over evil. His healings are authority over disease. His nature miracles are authority over creation and the natural order. And resuscitations are authority over death. Right. But it's important that we call them resuscitations rather than resurrections Mm -hmm. because resurrection means you've experienced the deified body. Right. Resuscitation means I've just brought you back to life. Right. In the same body you once had. Right. And it happened across a short period of time. So think about when people are resuscitated today. Mm. That's a resuscitation. Um, but Jesus doesn't die. Yeah. He ascends to heaven. Like, so resurrection is unique to the person of Jesus. And that's why we get the prophecy in Ezekiel 37 of the general resurrection, mm. that all the people of God will be resurrected. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection of the body, right. like that's going to happen at one point. But we haven't experienced that yet. Nobody's experienced that except Jesus because he never died again. Right. He truly conquers death. Right. And that's that's something that I think is so important. 
and Paul really hits on in First Corinthians 15, but how can someone who's been defeated by death offer life? Mm. He can't. Yeah. Like if, if you if you came to me and said, hey, do you want to buy Babe Ruth, like original Babe Ruth baseball, baseball card? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Oh, yeah, me too, man. I'll have one. <laughs> Why would you even bring that up then? Yeah. Like, because you can't offer something to someone that you don't have. Right. You can't offer life if you haven't defeated death. That's unique to the person of Jesus. Yeah. And so he ascends into heaven. This is unique. Um, And I wrestle with this in my own theology right now. And once again, we talk about this almost every episode. If there's no element of your theology that you're currently wrestling with or redefining or, or refining, um, you're probably a heretic. Like, cause we're always seeing these tensions as we dive deeper into scripture. But, um, he ascended to heaven. When you ascend, what are you doing? Yeah. You're so, literally going up. Yeah. You're going up. Do you think heaven is literally a finite place so above us? I was, I was just thinking this. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't. I have no idea. I don't think it is. And I don't, metaphysically, we've never seen it as that. No. I mean, in the garden, it's almost like they, they were one and the same. Mm-hmm. And then sin separated them into parallel universes that the, the immaterial, the spiritual world can cross over. But we can't cross over into the spiritual or immaterial world. And so there's just these these two parallel planes. They're metaphysically aligned, but but independent. Um, and that God is has a plan throughout human history to rejoin them. Mm. So whatever happens, Jesus ascends. Right. But I don't think he actually like exists incorporeally above us somewhere. Like, yeah, I think maybe in the eyes of the disciples, like it, he goes up mm. because like that would be, I don't know. I, I don't know where else he would go, but like, I also don't think heaven is a finite place that exists high above the clouds. Yeah. I, well, definitely not like some finite place, but we see this consistently when people ascend they literally go up. Well, so right. we only see, so where where do we see ascension? So we see it in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it in. Uh, uh, so um, one of the 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 was it Enoch? Did he ascend? Mm-hmm. And then we see. Nope. Um, it only happens in Jesus and Enoch. No, we see it in uh, nope. Elisha, right? Nope. Oh yeah, in the chariot. Yeah, you're yeah. Right. So there's three. Three, and, I guess. And they literally go up. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to to deal with that. Yeah. So I think, you know, we 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 see them or experience them going up because heaven in the ancient world and in, in the ancient languages of Greek and Hebrew, heaven and sky are the same word. Right. So naturally and, and because we have a, a an experience of hierarchy that the things that are above us are greater than us mm. um, in power and authority. I mean, 
just think the level of intimidation factor of someone that's taller than you versus shorter than you goes down quite a bit. Um, And so I think we understand it as going up, but I don't think that Jesus actually exists somewhere above us in a place called heaven. Yeah. Um, No, that. And so this is also a bit of where the philosophy kind of comes in and these kinds of things like, um, the point that they're trying to get at is that he didn't die again. Right. Like he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. Yeah. Um, like that is the point that they're trying to make. Um, so if you miss that and is seated at the right hand of the father is the rest of the, the creed or the next part of the creed. Um, Meaning that he's, so think Philippians 2, right? He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped or exploited, uh, but emptied himself, descends into humanity. And, but now he's conquered death and ascended back to this place of exaltation with God the Father, seated at the right hand, uh, the right-hand man, the position of power, like second in command, um, like he's back to equality with God. Yeah. Um, and he's still in his body. Right. Like that's the other point that I want you to know. Like God the Son was pre existent. He always existed, but he didn't always exist as the person Jesus. Yeah. Um, now he will forever exist as the person named Jesus. Uh, and he ex- ascended to the right hand of God. And these next two or next three parts are really important. Yeah. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus becomes judge. Mm. Like he is the one that will do the great judgment. And that is why we have a need for justification, the clothing in his righteousness because we can never be pure. So when he comes in judgment, we will all be judged. The question is, will you be judged without his righteousness or with it? Right. Those without it are put into their own category. They're destined for damnation and separation from God. Those with it are forgiven. They're clothed in righteousness. Right. Um, and so, but this phrase, he will come again with glory. So we get this in, uh, in most evangelical expressions now, that's been morphed into a rapture theology, which if you know me or have listened to me talk or preach for very long, very politely, I am buying it. Um, that originated less than 100 years ago you know, very weird experience and Americans are the only people that believe that or other people that Americans have reached like one-offs. They definitely weren't thinking that in the ancient world. And so when Paul says in Thessalonians, we will meet him in the clouds, the word there is parousia, meet him in the clouds at his coming. And it was what happened when a king would come back from war or a prominent person was entering a city, the city would rush out to meet him Mm -hmm. outside the city gates. And then 
bring him back, like usher him back in honor as he enters the city with a triumphal entry. Right. You should ding, 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 click, ding, click, ding, click, ding, click, ding. Click. Like that's what happens with Jesus at the triumphal entry. Yeah. Like it's going to be that kind of thing again. Yeah. That's uh, uh, a Bible project hyperlink back. Yeah. To, yeah. You like, you shouldn't read that as this weird, like, super literal interpretation of revelation like that that interpretation is like void of ancient context yeah uh and so probably not the best that you read it that way uh you should probably look to reading it another way that's more true to the bible um and ancient expressions of eschatology but now again that is a a non-essential well, um, no, no. So the the rapture the, itself. Well, the way in which eschatology unfolds, right, is a non-essential. Right. What is essential is what's recorded in the creed right. that he's coming back. Absolutely, that and, is essential, and he's coming back as judge. Yeah. Um. You know, this is this is a hard one because the Bible is intentionally vague on this issue and exactly what this looked like, especially because most of it's recorded in apocalyptic literature. Yeah. And so, um, I want to be careful. Uh, and this is something that you all should know and note. Um, we talk about literature as, uh, literal or temporal and as prophetic or forthtelling. That's a, that's an oversimplification. That's not exactly how it works. You have, literature in a variety of genres and what most of us call prophetic is really apocalyptic which means revelation like apocalypse is a greek word that means revelation so like the book revelation at the end of your bible in greek it's called the apocalypse Mm. like that's what its title is um because it's a unique genre of literature. And even some of Paul's letters are apocalyptic. Yeah. Some um, would say that, some would argue that Paul wrote everything through an apocalyptic worldview. Yeah. So, apocalyptic worldview, yes. Not all right. this stuff is apocalyptic in, uh, in genre, but definitely parts of Second Corinthians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Parts of Thessalonians. 100%. Um, are definitely apocalyptic in nature. 100%. Um, especially like some of that stuff where Paul's like, hey, I knew a dude who went up to the third heaven. <laughs> like, Paul, <laughs> you're being funny, bro. Um, pretty sure that just happened to you. Like, and you don't want to say that. It's like, hey, uh, 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 really embarrassing question. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. Like, no. I have a friend who. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not exactly what happened there. Like, so. So we should think about literature as apocalyptic and non-apocalyptic, not as prophetic and not prophetic. Because even when Paul tells the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy, like that that narrative seems to be what we've interpreted as like contemporary preaching. Yeah. But yet there seems to be this other element of prophecy— in which someone prophesies and foretells a coming event. 
So like we really need to, we need to, I know this sounds funny. We need to complicate our language. Like we need to move away yeah. from the oversimplified language on this issue. Yeah. Uh, as it relates to the apocalyptic literature. But at some level, the important part of this is that Jesus has to come again. Like that's the essential. He has to come again in glory and judgment. Absolutely. To judge the living and the dead. And those also apocalyptic language, not literally those who are living and dead, but those who are living and dead, but also those who are experiencing life in Christ and death and absence from him. Absolutely. Um, and lastly, for the Jesus part, his kingdom will never end. Amen. Like that, um, the kingdom of God is the time and place in human history where God reigns over the world. Um, and when he reigns, it will never end. Yeah. Like the, there's never going to come a time where the reign of God ends. Yeah. Um, and we live, this is probably another episode that we need to have, but we live in this unique space where we live in the kingdom of God and we still live in this present evil age to use Paul's language, um, because they overlap. Yeah. Uh, at, at the fall, we, experience this present evil age and it exists up until the fulfillment or the culmination of the kingdom of God, which comes at the second coming. Yeah. At the second coming in the final judgment, the, this present evil age will end. But at the coming of the Messiah, we get the enactment of the kingdom of God, right? Remember the narrative of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus is, Repent, believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. It's here. Um, repent and believe in the kingdom of God. That, like, the kingdom of God is inaugurated with Jesus. Yeah. It's not culminated. Right. So we where we live is in this weird two-age gap where we have elements of the kingdom of God and elements of this present evil age. But there's going to come a time where this present age, evil age ends. Yeah. And the kingdom of God will reign forevermore. Amen. That is the wholeness of the Nicene Creed for the Jesus part. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So come back next week. We're going to hit the Holy Spirit um, in one episode. We're going to take one episode to talk about the uh, the Apostles' Creed. And then we have some fun stuff coming. I have my friend Ben Blackwell coming in and we're going to do seven episodes on the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, that's going to be exciting. You guys are going to love that. Yeah. Um, Ben's a cool guy. Ben's a great guy. Yeah.